Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. On the science revolution this week, the impact of the pandemic on Trump's refusal to acknowledge science or join the World Health Organization's backed vaccine cooperation pact. It's harming Americans as Trump brings the con into the pandemic. Dr. Bandy Lee is here on the science of hate-mongering. Is Donald Trump's hate contagious? Ellie Zupnik drops by about another broken promise on drug pricing from Donald Trump as the August 24th deadline comes and goes. Plus, Kevin Patel is here on the pollution from wildfires. Stay tuned. New report withheld, or actually a series of reports being withheld from the White House. Jake Johnson writing about it over at Alternet. As President Donald Trump and administration officials have been publicly downplaying the COVID crisis, the White House task force has simultaneously been issuing dire assessments that are being sent to the red states, apparently. These assessments were kept secret from the public until Monday when the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus released a trove of task force reports dated from June 23rd to August 9. These show that the White House, well, this is, I'm quoting Jim Clyburn here, the task force reports released show the White House has known since June that coronavirus cases were surging across the country and many states were becoming dangerous red zones where the virus was spreading fast. Rather than being straight with the American people, Clyburn said, and creating a national plan to fix the problem, the president and his enablers kept these alarming reports private while publicly downplaying the threat to millions of Americans. For example, on June 29th, Mike Pence said, all 50 states are opening up safely and responsibly. Whereas the task force issued a report uh, right around that same time saying, quote, Mississippi reported a 117% increase in new cases in the week ending June 26, resulting from increased community transmission in multiple counties attributed to reduced social distancing. There's a whole long list of the reports here. I won't bore you with them. But the bottom line is that at the same time the Trump administration was warning red states, look out, it's coming, get your act together. Trump and Pence and these guys were all saying to the public, oh, nothing to worry about. Meanwhile, this was a study out of Germany, and it was of 100 people who had gotten sick who weren't severely ill, but they all had symptoms. Out of that 100, over 70 of them, and in my recollection is it was 75 or 76 of them, roughly three-quarters of them, months later, were showing damage to their hearts and ongoing heart disease as a direct result of that COVID infection. And the median age for that group was 50. So if we were to go, you know, full herd immunity, you know, as uh, Brianna Keeler points out, with a fatality rate of 1%, which seems to be the neighborhood where we're working in the United States, then if a little more than half, if 200 million of us were infected, you'd have 2 million dead people. And are we willing to have 2 million dead people? And would that produce the antibodies? Well, Sweden experimented with this for a while. They have the highest case fatality rate in Europe. In Norway, 48 out of a million people have died 
as a result of this virus. In Estonia, it's 48.2. In Finland, it's 60 out of a million. In Denmark, it's 107 out of a million. But in Sweden, it's 576 out of a million who died from coronavirus. And what did they get for that effort? Well, it turns out in Stockholm, only 7.3% have developed antibodies. And then we've got the situation where this American now has been reinfected with the coronavirus. The Hong Kong case was the one from three weeks ago. It got all the publicity. A guy got the coronavirus again. And now we have an American who got it again. It appears in both cases that they were infected with a different strain. It first infected with what you could refer to as the Wuhan or China strain. The second time they're infected with what you could refer to as the European or Spanish and Italian strain. And that would suggest And again, this is all speculative right now. Nobody really knows. But that would suggest that if we're going to respond to this virus with vaccines, it's going to be like flu. If the vaccine doesn't target the specific strain that happens to be circulating, then it doesn't produce immunity. And this is where, you know, some years we hit it with the flu virus and some years we don't. The vaccine is relatively ineffective. Sometimes it's very effective. It depends on, you know, whether the vaccine developers hit it right. And if that's the case with the coronavirus, we're looking at a long-term situation that's going to, if this is the case, this is the, which is the caveat, and let's be very clear about that. But that means that we're looking possibly at literally a permanent long-term alteration in human behavior, which is pretty breathtaking when you think about it. Now, keep in mind, the flu has only been around for a few millennia. 170 countries around the world are collaborating on developing a vaccine. Some of them have advanced pharmaceutical and whatnot capabilities. They're developing vaccines. Others are helping fund the research. Others, many of the poorer countries among them, are lining up basically populations, vulnerable populations on which vaccines could be tested to find out in small numbers, to find out if they're safe and effective, and in large numbers to see how effective they may be. So this is what is being done around the world, and it's being coordinated by the World Health Organization, as you would expect. I mean, that's the job of the World Health Organization. But because Donald Trump has been trash-talking the World Health Organization for the last year, because or the last six months, because uh, they came out with a COVID test in January. We didn't have one until April. Maybe it was March. It took us a while, right? Because the CDC developed a test, and then it turned out it was contaminated. It didn't work, blah 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 And we still don't have nationwide testing. Whereas the CDC was shipping tests back in January, all over the world. They were made by a German company that had developed the test. We still don't have that test here in the United States. So because the World Health Organization made Trump look like a fool, he's refusing to participate in these vaccine trials all around the world with 170 other countries. We're going to go it alone. And he seems to think that if we develop the most successful vaccine and we went it alone, that we alone can inoculate our population and be the only country in the world with actual vaccine-induced herd immunity. But what if our vaccines aren't the ones that work? What if China develops a vaccine that works first? They're hard at work on this. There are reports even that, you know, they've been experimenting with some of these vaccines on a very expedited basis with the Uyghur populations, which would be probably a crime under international law. But, and I can't verify it. Nobody's been able to verify that. But 
They're working on vaccines. The Russians have already announced a vaccine, Sputnik V. They just announced that they're going to push back widespread distribution of it until after November. We would not have access, presumably, to these other vaccines because we're not participating with the World Health Organization in this. Meanwhile, Trump says that he's going to save us all money on pharmaceuticals. Yesterday, when he was in Kenosha, he told reporters, he said that the drug companies are coming to see me, quote, this week to broker a deal, quote, substantially reducing drug prices. So that's what he told the press. That's what was reported to the American people. So some of the reporters who were there reached out to Pharma, the trade association for the pharmaceutical industry, and said, you guys going to the White House this week? Nicole Longo, spokeswoman for Pharma, for Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers Association of America, said, quote, we are not aware of any meeting. We know nothing about this. Trump keeps insisting that he issued an executive order that's lowering drug prices, but it's never been issued. Nobody's ever seen it. The drug companies are shrugging their shoulders and continuing to jack up prices. It looks like Trump just thinks that if he just lies about things, if he just says them, that people will take them as true. And sadly, that is probably an accurate assessment for his base, for his followers, the people who believe that he's basically their savior. The rest of us, uh, not so much. We've got to figure it out. This guy's been a con man literally his whole entire life. And he's conning America right now. Okay, back in the 1930s, there was this weird guy in Germany who had a little mustache, and he said things like, if you wish the sympathy of the broad masses, you must tell them the crudest and most stupid things. Tell a lie loud enough and long enough, and people will believe it. It is a quite special secret pleasure how the people around us fail to realize what's really happening to them. The greater the crime perpetrated by the leadership, the less likely it is that the people will ever believe their leaders to be capable of perpetrating such event. Oh, and this is the final one. I wanted to get to the science behind this. The receptivity of the masses is very limited. Their intelligence is small, but their power of forgetting is enormous. In consequence of these facts, all effective propaganda must be limited to a very few points and must harp on these in slogans until the last member of the public understands what you want him to understand by your slogan. Now, he was not unique in saying these things. Colo Machiavelli laid out basically the same stuff. We've seen this over and over with a number of people throughout the years in various countries and in some ways here in the United States. But I wanted to to dig into the science of this sort of rhetoric and where we go with this. On the line with us is Dr. Bandy Lee, the assistant clinical professor at the Yale School of Medicine, a forensic psychiatrist at the Yale University Medical School, co-founder of the World Mental Health Coalition, editor of a new book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 27 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess the President. The website for that book is dangeruscase.org. Dr. Bandy Lee's Twitter handle is bandyxlee1. Dr. Lee, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. I'm curious your thoughts on the Republican convention and Donald Trump going now to Wisconsin over the objections of the governor and the mayor and how this all yes. fits into one coherent way of essentially communicating a particular political philosophy to people. The Republican National Convention was quite spectacular. And it was most notable to me in terms of the visuals, 
the sounds and the presentation. It was very carefully thought through, coordinated, and orchestrated. And it was very clear that there was a certain kind of psychological shaping of those who would view it was in mind. The Republican Party in general is far more sophisticated in this way than the Democrats are, and it certainly played out during the convention. What I thought about in terms of the dangers of this is the very nomination of someone in the first place, someone who has actually, among us mental health professionals, we actually have done a full standardized mental capacity evaluation. And quite astonishingly, he failed every criterion. That means that there's almost no chance for his fitness for virtually any job. So you take someone who is incapable of almost any job, and certainly of the presidency of the United States, and charging him with trying to reobtain the highest office in the land, this is a very dangerous arrangement. I think it's important to note that the violence in the streets is certainly not coming from protesters, and not even entirely from police officers instigating it but from the mind of the person in the Oval Office himself. This kind of influence on violence is actually far more pervasive than the most overt kinds of violence. I've studied this my entire career. My area of expertise is in violence prevention. And we find that the more hidden forms of violence are actually are the deadliest and the most worrisome. So one person hitting another is not as dangerous as someone of greater influence stoking violence, inciting it, then creating a culture of violence, I would say, is the most dangerous kind of all and fueling the divisions and creating greater danger. Dr. Lee, when a leader is speaking the way that Donald Trump is right now, essentially tearing society apart, pitting people against each other, and using multiple opportunities to do it. I mean, Trump is tearing people apart with regard to masks, you know, as well as with regard to guns and, and protests right. and everything else. When such leaders have emerged, whether it was Pinochet in Chile or whether it was Hitler in Germany, the more obvious example, I suppose, Mussolini in Italy, Franco in Spain. Now in the modern day, we're seeing this with Modi in India, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Duda in Poland. The list goes on and on. In almost every case, it seems that they actually succeeded in tearing people apart and, and pitting people against each other in their countries so effectively that they were able to walk into the gap of governance that was essentially created by the chaos and the hate and the anger. How best should a people and a political party or politician, I'm thinking obviously the Democrats and Joe Biden, respond to this? Well, it's very difficult if you do not bring mental health into the picture. When we have a serious situation like this, and I have emphasized that we're not talking about clinical psychiatry or mental health here. We're talking about public mental health. That is a little different. So we're not treating the president. We're not diagnosing him. We are responding to our public health duty, our responsibility to society, which we have equally as we do to patients. And the evaluations that are important to this are dangerousness and unfitness. 
And we have done those evaluations very rigorously with the highest quality data. They do not require personal examination. Is Donald Trump's mental illness contagious? It It seems like it. Yes. In fact, it's a very astute observation because many of us in our individual-oriented society like to think that we have full control of our minds. But in fact, mental symptoms can be more contagious than other forms of infectious disease, such as coronavirus or Ebola, because you do not require physical contact or exposure. You only require emotional bonds. And this is the natural expected result of having a severely mentally impaired person in an influential position such as president. Dr. Bandy Lee, Yale School of Medicine, uh, dangeruscase.org is the website for the book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. Dr. Lee, thanks so much for dropping by. Sponsoring the interview this week is... Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. On the line with us is Kevin Patel. He is the founder and executive director of OneUpAction.org, chronicling what's going on with these uh, wildfires in California. Kevin, welcome to the program. Tell us, uh, what's the situation with the wildfires in California, and how is that affecting air quality, and why should we care? The global wildfires, if you historically look at it, these are worse than ever in California. They're spread throughout the state of California, and they're not only causing people to evacuate during a global pandemic, but they're also causing people who have respiratory issues or underlying health issues to verily be affected by these conditions because the air pollution and smog pollution just to verily go up in these areas. 
Have we seen epidemiological consequences of forest fires? This has been going on enough years, you would think that the data would be out there, that if you're X miles downwind of X fire, then your risk of developing asthma or, or coming up with some sort of respiratory disorder or having increased risk of heart attack goes up by a certain percentage. Is that data available? What I look at is how air and smog pollution really affect these communities that are living close and proximate, not, you know, living close to the fires, but also that have other, um, that live near fossil fuel infrastructure. It's a combination of both things, fossil fuel infrastructure, but we're also looking at the fires. So living downwind of a, uh, of, a, of a cracking or refinery operation or even a power plant is as dangerous or as bad as living downwind from a wildfire or vice versa, right? A lot of our community, uh, 1.8 million Californians live near oil and gas wells and the fossil fuel infrastructure, which is, again, releasing toxic chemicals and they're being exposed to these toxin, you know, toxic chemicals and breathing in all of this but also while they're breathing all of these toxic chemicals you're seeing that they're also living near these fires which is also causing huge amounts of air and smog pollution which causes underlying health issues as data shows so it definitely is something that i try to look into i'm you know a young activist i i'm 19 years of age i myself live in south central los angeles not near any wildfires Thank God. But within the state of California and look, uh, talking to peers that do live close to fires, they look at that statistic and saying, like, you know, we're not only being attacked by the fossil fuel infrastructure, but we're also being attacked by rampant wildfires that are happening throughout the state of California. And a lot of people say, you know, the governor said that recently in the DNC, he said, you know, if you don't believe in climate change, come to California and just look at how rampant the fires are. And he said that because in never in history has there been so many wildfires simultaneously happening throughout the state of California and at a rampant rate where we are not even able to contain them just because of the heat waves and all of these drastic weather patterns that are happening, especially with the 11,000 lightning strikes that were happening in communities, which to me is mind boggling. It's extraordinarily ironic that the fossil fuel infrastructure that we've had for the last 150 years has produced the global warming that is producing the wildfires that are poisoning our air, Mm -hmm. just like the fossil fuel infrastructure was. Kevin Patel, the uh, website is oneupaction.org, and he is the founder and executive director of One Up Action. Kevin, thanks for dropping by today. Great talking with you. Great talking to you. Thank you for having me. some kind of grody stuff going on at the intersection of big business and pharmaceuticals. On the line with us is Ali Zupnik with Accountable.us, spokesperson for Accountable Pharma. I heard Donald Trump, what, day before yesterday, I think, doing a whole riff about how he was cutting drug prices. He was talking about this at the Republican convention. He talks about it during his rallies and things, and everybody's, oh, yeah, you know, cut those drug prices. I think, you know, most people wouldn't know if he had actually cut drug prices. It's not like there's a scoreboard like the Dow Jones Industrial that we see on a regular basis. They may just know about their own pharmaceuticals. They may think that those are the exception rather than the rule. Who knows? But what's going on here? 
Well, I think you set it up exactly right. This is an issue that Trump has been talking about for years. He started on the campaign talking about it. He mentions it every state of the union. He talks about it. He tweets about it. He says that he's an enemy of big pharma and that he's been reducing drug prices and that Democrats would do the opposite. It's clearly something that's important for his brand, but the reality is that, as you noted, he has done absolutely nothing to actually reduce drug prices. Anyone who gets their prescription drugs knows this very well, and no amount of tweets are going to really make a difference in how they think about this. So that takes us to what has been happening this last month when Trump, he held a big press conference on July 24th, I apparently realizing that he had spent three years not delivering on this big promise that he'd made. And he had a big conference and said that he was going to be signing executive orders to reduce the price of prescription drugs. He signed those orders. He signed three of them. One of them, which is the one that the pharmaceutical industry claimed to be most upset about, was one called the International Pricing Index, or other people call it a most favored nations policy. I could go into the details, but the reality is they're not that important because it's not going to be implemented. But this one, Trump made a threat. He said that he was going to hold off on actually implementing it unless the pharmaceutical companies came back by August 24th with a proposal that would go even further, that would substantially reduce drug prices. This was widely seen as an empty threat. Most analysts who saw these executive orders correctly saw that they would almost certainly not be implemented in time for Trump's first term to end. So they were seen as an empty gesture. But as we know well, as you noted, as we've seen time and again from Trump, he cares more about the flash and the message and the press conference than he does about the actual implementation. So what happened next was really interesting. And and that is that we saw the drug industry erupt in this faux outrage campaign. They pretended to be aggrieved. They pretended that this would actually hurt them. They put out a statement, their main lobbying arm, Pharma, put out a statement saying that it was socialist. Drug company executives had been planning to go to the White House. They canceled their visit. The National Association of Manufacturers, a drug company, drug industry ally, began running TV ads saying that Trump was hurting the ability of drug companies to innovate. Trump then responded, as you've seen, as as folks have seen, saying things like, drug companies are attacking me, so you know that I'm on your side. I've been reducing drug prices. He created exactly the spectacle that he hoped to create. He got great headlines. He looked like he was fighting Big Pharma. Big Pharma was playing their part in the game perfectly. Now, if you fast forward to a month later, August 24th, the day that he said he would be delivering on this threat if Pharma didn't come through with their response, we heard absolutely nothing. Crickets. Reporters wrote about trying to reach the HHS and see what was going on. They didn't hear anything, nothing. One thing that we did hear in the interim was drug company CEOs were telling their shareholders on their earnings calls in August that they had nothing to worry about, that despite what they may hear in the news, they're not expecting any impact from these executive orders. One, the Eli Lilly CEO told his shareholders that the most likely scenario is that they don't even take force prior to a new term. So these drug company executives were being honest with their shareholders but playing the game with the public in order to make it seem like there was this big fight happening. It's mind-boggling. Two days later, yeah, I mean, this is classic, classic Trump. So after August 24th, when people started to note that 
he had made this threat. He said on midnight on August 24th, we're going to be delivering on this promise to reduce drug prices. In the interim, he had been tweeting as if he already signed this executive order, saying that drug prices were coming down 50, 60, 70 percent, which would be untrue if this were actually implemented and was double untrue because he never even signed it. People hadn't even seen the text of this executive order, which is unprecedented. Usually when an executive order is signed or announced, it goes into the federal register. That hadn't happened. It was a hidden executive order. In, I think in the hopes that he claimed that Pharma would deliver something more, but we know that's not true. So two days after the deadline, Pharma finally, we finally hear about this counter proposal that had been discussed, and it turns out to not shockingly deliver nothing close to the savings that Trump was promising. It would be less than what analysts expect from an executive order, even if an executive order were ever implemented. It would essentially kill off actual international pricing index policies, which are not bad policies. They just aren't going to happen under President Trump. And one thing that was particularly interesting in Pharma's response was they put in writing in their memo to him that they said even though the impact would be less, they said it would come before the election and it could happen faster than a rule could come. So clearly implying to Trump or trying to tease to him that he could show some kind of results pre-election if he went their way, which wouldn't actually hurt the bottom line, rather than go his way, which they think would hurt their bottom line just a little bit more. So that's where we stand. There's been no real response from the White House. Just a little while ago, Trump was asked about this by a reporter, and he said he's meeting with the drug companies this week. You know, we'll believe it when we see it. We don't know if that's actually going to happen. Yeah. Or your $110 drug just became a $109.20 drug. You know, this is pretty remarkable. We're talking with uh, Ellie Zupnik of Accountable.us. Is there any pushback to this? Obviously, your group is pointing this out, but are you seeing other politicians pushing back on, on these lies and this BS coming out of the Trump administration? Not as much as there should be. And I, I think that's a product of Trump's regular playbook of just throwing so many things out there that it's hard to keep up and hard to respond to everything. But people should be mad about this. They should see this as just another broken promise that it is. He is telling them that he has reduced their prices. He is lying to them. He is saying that he is threatening the pharmaceutical industry and pretending to have this big fight over an executive order when it's just not true. And meanwhile, like always under President Trump, the people who are paying the price are patients who are not seeing what costs who are continuing to see their prices go up. The pharmaceutical industry makes more and more profits. They push some of that to Trump, and they're happy, and patients are not. Ellie Zupnik, the Twitter handle, E-L-I-Z-U-P-N-I-C-K. Countable.us is the website. Ellie is the spokesperson for Countable Pharma. Ellie, thanks a lot for dropping by today. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.